Gen X Playback, episode number 31. And welcome to the Gen X Playback Show, your favorite show about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We are the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And you are listening to the Gin Blossoms, one of those 90s treasures. And they hail from one of our favorite towns from the Gen X Playback Show, that being Phoenix, Arizona. So welcome, Phoenix, Arizona, to the Gen X Playback Show. And Sean figured, yeah, we sometimes we don't give enough love to the 90s. Uh, but the Gin Blossoms were one of those bands that I really followed in the 1990s, just kind of that, you know, that, uh, I wouldn't call them folksy, but it was that sound of the 90s that was that was pretty popular for about five, six years, after, you know, after grunge mm-hmm. kind of had its run. Yeah. And this is like the middle of the 90s, 95, 96, and, and the Jim Blossoms were, were very big on the charts back in that time. They were. And while I was not a fan of grunge music, I really liked the Jim Blossoms. I, you know, when, whenever I would do a mixtape, because I know we had an episode on, on mixtapes here not that long ago, back in the 90s around that time when I was coming up with my, you know, mixed CDs at that point, the Jim Blossoms, they were always, always on one of, one of those mixed CDs. Yeah, they, um, you know, the Jim Blossoms were, uh, there was another band out there that I liked, Toad the Wet Sprocket was, mm-hmm. was another band, similar sound okay. that, that I really enjoyed, but. Uh, you know, they were very big on VH1, showed a lot of their videos, and it was one of those bands that was around for about a four or five year period. And then they just kind of disbanded, uh, you know, making music on the, like on the top 40 scene. But, and then the band kind of went their separate ways, but they've come back now and again for reunion tours. And uh, from what I understand, they draw very well because, you know, I think they had a really strong fan base back in the day and and the, as we're going to talk about tonight you know about fan bases and coming back to see bands mm-hmm. you know there's something to be said about that right and you know i was enough of a fan of the gin blossoms where the moment you played it um i knew you were going to talk about phoenix okay I, because they to me i associate them with with phoenix okay yeah i mean it's there there are certain bands that kind of get tied to their hometown you know, frequently, you know, bands will leave where they live and then they'll, they'll go off to L.A. usually or New York on occasion. But um, it seemed like for me, I don't know why I just always associated them with their hometown. They just seem to always be based out of there. Okay. Yeah. So we want to uh, shout out and give some love to Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you for tuning in to the Gen X Playback Show. And, you know, in addition to being the largest podcast in Nestville, Pennsylvania, we like to like to acknowledge those that are around the country and around the world. You know, I, we said it before that we're up to about uh, 20 countries worldwide, and we're in almost all 50 states, not quite 50 states in the U.S., but we're getting there. And it just seems like there's these there are these little pockets uh, in certain areas that 
really take off. Like I'm really surprised. Like Sean, I don't know when, when you look at some of the some of the demographics that are presented to us that uh, you know Texas seems to have really taken off with the show. We want to thank our listeners down in Texas. Uh, Philadelphia mm-hmm. is, is another one. You know, obviously we have a lot of our relatives that that like to tune into our podcast, but it just really makes me feel good because we try and represent Philly so much in in the podcast and the fact that there is such a strong presence of listenership out there makes uh you know because we're coming up we're i'm trying to be a little reminiscent here because we just passed our one-year anniversary we did since we started broadcasting this show and it just it kind of amazes us how how we've where we've come from where we started and where we're at now we're just looking at some of that stuff before we start to hit the record button here right it's um yeah you know it it's Scott and I started this with with no thoughts of what what was going to happen. You know, it, it's like let just let's get out there, let's be creative because I think both you and I had this creative itch that we wanted to scratch and kind of miss some of our radio days that we you know used to have twenty some years ago. And we thought, hey, let's let's do it, and maybe there'll be some people out there that want to listen. If not, it's something that we can just record and have out there for ourselves to sure. archive, which is kind of neat to do and and point people to uh you talk about like you know family and and friends um you know because we usually shout out or at least when we tell the stories we tell the names it's it's pretty rare that we we hold back so folks at least that that know us if if there's a story coming up you may hear your name (laughs) and but that's good i you know that that's all part of it you know we assume no one's no one's listening but uh (laughs) you know people are well, you know, that, that does bring to mind a story from when you and I were back in our radio days. And our good friend, Annette Boyer, who used to do football and basketball with us. And we used to have so much fun at the games, just the three of us, because we're all about the same age and we all had the same interests. She's a big sports fan, really an underrated sportscaster for that, that era of the 90s. I thought she was she was uh, sharp and had a great sense of humor, quick wit. Um, but at one point, we're we're talking during the broadcast, and our radio station didn't have the largest signal in the world. I think at nighttime it dropped down to something like I don't know thirteen or fourteen watts. Right. So you might be able to hear us about seven or eight blocks down. You were not going to hear us in Phoenix, Arizona. Absolutely not. But at one point. Uh, Annette is talking and she makes some kind of a mistake <laughs> and she catches herself. She goes, ah, nobody's listening anyway. <laughs> and we just, we had such a big laugh about it because you know, we're, we're out there like we were, like we were performing to thousands of people or millions of people. Mm-hmm. But the, the odds are there might've been, I don't know, maybe, maybe one listener at, at the time, but uh, you know, it just brought back some good memories for us that we used to enjoy kind of sitting and hanging out and sh- swapping stories sure. like we're doing right now. And hopefully, you know, it, it seems like there's there's that common factor for a lot of listeners for this era, that being 70s, 80s, 90s for Gen X, and, and that we look back on it with great fondness. Well, and, you know, it's kind of interesting when you talk about us having a bit of a, a Philadelphia perspective, definitely an East Coast perspective. That's true. I, I would agree with that. But one of the one of the great things I think about the Gen X era, and I, and hopefully our listeners can agree with that, is because of what was happening with MTV in particular. Mm-hmm. We went from being very regional, and there was something national that happened. So I know you're going to talk about some bands tonight. That and 
and at least one band in particular has a very strong uh, regional uh, grasp, you know, you know, the uh, appeal and, and uh, popularity where, yes, but also they were, no, they were known nationally. So, and I think that probably became more prevalent because of MTV, where you would see some of these little local bands. I mean, I, I remember you would, it, it, you play um, the Jim Blossoms, right? Mm-hmm. So lead, lead singer is Robin Wilson mm-hmm. of the Jim Blossoms. Well, um, he's been filling in as the lead singer of the Smithereens. You know, the last few years where, you know, and, and the Smithereens was a band that, you know, kind of a, I mean, they were New Jersey band, you know, kind of a New York band, but they, at one time, they probably would have been a regional band mm-hmm. and they're probably a little bigger on the East Coast, but still people that are listeners in Texas, I guarantee you know about the Smithereens. Sure. Yeah. The Smithereens had, had a very popular time period. So yeah. you're absolutely right. All right. So, you know, Sean kind of prefaced it a little bit. What our topic was supposed to be. Oh, yeah. It's got week. called a lateral uh, in this yeah. episode. I mean, what it was supposed to be is I, I kind of wanted to come up with the, the name of it. And, a, and I guess the official title was going to be The Story Behind the Song. And I, I thought, you know, we could probably, because we grow, grew up in a family that likes to tell a lot of stories, you know, a storytelling family. Uh, it's just something that's very very popular with our friends and our relatives and, and everybody growing up. It's like, you know, you want to tell stories. So I thought it'd be cool to tell some stories behind some songs like, and, and I'll just throw one out as an example. And this is kind of where I thought came up with the idea. We'll, we'll revisit it at some point. Uh, the song waiting for a star to fall by the, the group boy meets girl. Mm-hmm. Okay. The only reason that they even came up with this song is they had never had any intention of recording it. It was originally written for Whitney Houston. So when, because uh, they wrote uh, a few songs off of her debut album. So they presented this song to Clive Davis and Clive Davis said, no, this is not Whitney material. Write something else. So they just happened to uh, write a song uh, that everybody knows called I Want to Dance with Somebody. And it's funny because if you play the two songs side by side or one right after the other, you can kind of hear some similarities because they kind of, the, the songwriting team, they, they the husband and wife, they wrote I Want to Dance with Somebody after Waiting for a Star to Fall. But okay. you can see, you can hear it. You can definitely hear the, 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 the common. And they were able to get Belinda Carlisle to record Waiting for a Star to Fall. But she didn't like the finished version and didn't include it in her in her album. So... Boy Meets Girl only came into creation and Waiting for a Star to Fall was recorded because they felt the strong was the song was good enough and they didn't want it to just get thrown onto the scrap heap. They wanted to record it for posterity and end up being a big hit, you mm-hmm. know. So that's where I was going with, okay. with all that. All right. But I thought because um Amy and I and this was my birthday present, and my birthday was back in July, but this concert hit our area and we're doing this broadcast now it is august the 18th of 2023 so august 11th last friday i was doing some research for the gen x podcast show by going to the rick springfield i love the 80s tour which featured rick he was the headliner the hooters paul young and tommy two-tone so i thought you know so many so often sean and i we have a tendency to you know step back in time to talk about 
about events that happened back then. But I thought, you know what, let's give a little bit of love to some guys who are out there and all the music is in that time capsule of 70s, 80s, 90s. But they're out there doing it now. And and I give those guys all the credit in the world. And I thought it was it was a fun show. I don't think I would be talking about it if it wasn't a fun show. And I just thought, let's let's give a little love to the bands. So let's talk about the bands. Okay. And let's, you know, talk about because uh, you actually, you know, after before we sat down and hit the record button. You actually said you saw some of the clips from the concert that I watched last Friday. Yeah, and well, you know, I and I, I, you know, I repeat myself a lot on this podcast, but you know, I, I say over and over again, you know, while it was it was wonderful to have grown up in the Gen X era, one of the nice things about today is the technology. So because I did not go to the concert. I went onto YouTube because I knew someone was going to be there with their phone recording it. Right. And so I actually watched, I didn't watch all of Rick Springfield's set, but I watched, I watched Tommy Two Tones. Oh, I, I just watched 8675309 Jenny. This is the only song I really care to <laughs> listen to from Tommy Two Tone. And then I, li- I, 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 I think I saw three songs from Paul Young. And then I saw, I think, all of the Hooters songs. And I saw. About half a Rick set, mm-hmm. which is kind of neat that I could actually, you know, watch. It's you know, it's not the same as being there, mm-hmm. and that's the thing that while I I really enjoyed live music, because you can have something that is just you know shot professionally, and you can have the you know the perfect sound quality, but it's not the same as being there. You know, when you're there, there's this this emotion that you get. There's this there's this human factor that comes into play that only happens when you're physically there. So I didn't quite get it. I mean, you're going to be able to talk about that, but I was able to see a lot of the show. I think where where Gen X, where we all come together is when we have that common interest. It's amazing how easy it is to talk to people that you've never met before in your life. Like Amy and I, we were talking to people out in the concessions. Mhm. Um you know, it was uh, two ladies. They they both live in Lancaster now, and one was originally from California. She's telling telling us the story about the first time she ever saw Rick Springfield was out in Fresno, California, and she was so desperate to go. And she didn't. They had just recently moved. She had no friends in high school at that point, so she dragged her little brother right to go to the concert with him, and he wasn't too happy. But she's telling us the story, and she actually was like texting him, like, "Hey, <laughs> guess where I'm at? I'm at Rick Springfield again." And they're, you know, so they're able to, to kind of have to share that story sure. together. And I just thought, you know, it's, I think that's where Gen Xers, um, where we, we can sit there and go to a concert and have these shared moments with people that you've never met before right. and you're all having a good time. Right. And that's part of what going to a concert is. That's what part of going to a ball game is. You know, it's like, you know, you, you can, you can watch it on TV and you can have great acoustics great video you can have great uh, you know watching a, a football game on tv you're seeing the players way closer than going to typically a stadium we went to the eagles game last year against tennessee and we sat up behind the end zone and we're looking down you literally need kind of you need binoculars to be able to see the players because mm-hmm. they're, they're so far away but there's something about being there right you know it's it's the whole sharing the moment kind of thing and you you've had a chance to go to a lot of concerts even in the last you know number of years 10 15 years that 
I'm, I'm sure you probably have the same type of experiences. Sure, sure. And, you know, I, I did not tell you this, so this is a surprise for you. So part of the reason, uh, you know, well, I, I was very tempted to go to the show. You know, I wasn't going to intrude on, on the uh, your birthday moment with you and your wife and ask to go along. But I ended up going to Guns N' Roses that night. We knew that they were in Hershey. I got a last-minute uh, ticket, okay. like a very last-minute ticket, and then saw them at the Hershey Park, Hershey Park Stadium. Okay. Yeah, because we knew they were playing, and, and so we were told to, you know, don't try and go to – because we were in Grantville. Right. And Grantville is between uh, – if anybody that knows Pennsylvania, is between Harrisburg and Lebanon. And it's right off the highway on uh, Route 81, which is a main highway. Uh, but it's uh, the Hollywood Casino at Penn National. There's a racetrack up there. Racetrack's been there for decades. But the casino is probably about 10, 15 years old. And they built an outdoor uh, concert venue mm -hmm. that now they have quite a few touring acts that come through. Like I saw on the on the list that Belbiv DeVoe is going to be there Labor Day weekend. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I mean, it's like they, they, they have all these concerts coming on. I am tempted. That, that, <laughs> that sounds appealing. So it's it's one of those things where and I think a lot of it is, are these throwback type concerts. A lot of country. Um, but it's a great way for a band on their way to, like in this case, with this particular group of, of musicians, the following night they're performing in Atlantic City. So they can they can go. And Atlantic City's a big-time place because of the casinos. So it gives them a chance to go to Philly or gives them a chance. It's, it's a way that they can stop over and play a venue and you know pick up a couple extra dollars mm -hmm. on your way to maybe more of a main city. Well, when I... I was in college out at Heston, Kansas, uh, which is just outside of Wichita, Kansas. And what was great about when I went to school out there was the fact it that town was exactly what you just described. What you you described. So it was it was you know kind of along the highway as bands might travel between Denver and Chicago, or they might you know they they they, they would swing through the Midwest, and on a Wednesday night, you know they were on their way to a big show in Denver for the weekend so why not stop over into a town in wichita kansas where nothing's happening where you are going to get a bunch of you know teenagers looking for something to do and it was a good little money maker and it wasn't some you know it was they could literally look at the map and say hey let's just pick up an extra show it's it, you know it's just going to be free money mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so you know we get there the concert starts at seven o'clock and the first guy the the jump out there is uh you know he goes by tommy two-tone tommy two-tone is not his real name his real name is tommy heath and tommy heath is originally he said he was an army brat you know he announced that on stage i was an army brat my family moved all over the place uh one of the areas at which he did live he said was south philadelphia so uh, he considers himself an east coaster even though the band tommy two-tone when they when they got their break they were out in california when it happened, I know Tommy Two-Tone gets kind of lumped in with that West Coast sound, and they were one of the precursors. We talked about in our episode of um, my mixtape, 1982, and I, and I said about how important a band like the Motels were because they were very, very important, critical to kind of launching that West Coast L.A.-type sound. I think Tommy Two-Tone could kind of fit into that category. Because eight six seven five three zero nine, which is their their biggest hit, 
they had one other song that snuck into the top 40 before uh, 867-5309 Jenny. But that's what obviously what everybody remembers. Well, as, along those lines, I have a question for you. Yes. Did you ever give that number out to someone as like a fake number? Me personally, yeah. no. Because no, that was, that was like a thing people would do. Well, yeah, girls would do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. And evidently, you know, it was it was a real phone number at one time, uh, which is funny because whoever had the number got quite upset, right? That the fact that it became uh, such a such a major hit. Well, I but. think I don't know which magazine uh, or newspaper that ran a story back in the day on Tubby Two Tone, and I think they put Tommy Heath's phone number in the article, okay, so that he would get a taste of his own medicine, <laughs> and uh, you know, he had to get a different number. Okay, so you know Tommy's he's up there and he's playing and and because there's four bands, uh, he played a total of four songs. So he's he played actually you know it was an interesting version of Jim Croce's Operator. It was a much more upbeat version, but you could you could definitely catch along to the words and everything. And then uh, you know as he's like ah you know I gotta I gotta keep it short tonight, folks. I'm gonna gonna play one. One last song, so yeah, obviously, this is what everybody was waiting for, and he and he goes into it. And the one thing that stood out to me about the backup band mm-hmm. is we went on to identify the fact that Tommy Heath, this was not Tommy Two-Tone that was playing with Tommy Heath up on stage. And we and we learned later on that it was actually Rick's backup band. And they were the ones that were playing all these songs with, with Tommy Heath and then later Paul Young who came on second. Right. So it was, I thought, you know, you, you tip your cap to professional musicians Mm-hmm. And that is why, you know, when you think of stereo, you know, when you think of albums and you see guys out there, I, I know you mentioned on this show Steve Lukather a lot. But the fact that a Steve Lukather can go out there and play all these different styles of music and make it sound like when he went into the guitar solo of of this song, it wasn't, it wasn't Tommy Heath doing it. Uh, it was Rick's guitarist. And it sounded just like it did, like as if you were playing it right on the album. And that's what uh, Steve Lukather has said, and Tim Pierce, uh, who was Rick Springfield's guitarist back in the day, and is now one of the big studio guitar players. Mm-hmm. They say, you know, there's there's a difference between you know, kind of being having a certain sound as a guitar player, and it's your sound. You know, when Jimmy Page plugs in, you know, it's Jimmy Page. When Steve I plays, you know it's Steve I. When when Eddie was alive, you know it was Eddie Van Halen. But when you're a studio guy, you have to sound the way they want you to sound. Mm-hmm. So you have to be a bit of a chameleon where I would imagine whoever the guitar player was that you saw that was, you know, playing for Rick and then Paul Young and, and Tommy Tutone, this is, you know, this this is a, a guy who makes his living as a sideman. And he's going to sound like whatever the gig requires him to sound like. So that's, that's that's impressive to be able to to kind of like mimic other people and actually sound like them. Yeah, and the and the um, yeah one one 
as far as the guys up there playing, you know, keyboards and bass, uh, guitar, I, you know, Sean and I have talked about it. You have a tendency to watch the guitars. Yep. Yep. I always do. I have a tendency to watch the drummers. And uh, the drummer for the evening was a guy by the name of Jorge Palacios, who has been a session musician, a session drummer for, for many, many years, but he's actually been Rick Springfield's uh, drummer, I think, for the last 10 years. Uh, I think he started in 2013, so 10 years as Springfield's drummer. And uh, one of the most technically uh, skilled, fundamentally sound drummers I think I've ever watched on a concert stage. Like, you could see the difference between... And I and I think uh, David Osikinen from the Hooters is a really good drummer, but you could just see the proficiency between Palacios and Osikinen that, uh, you know... Palacios, you you could tell the guy is a professional drummer for a living. I mean, he's he is right there, and he makes it look so easy. So I I pulled up the from Rick's website his twerking band. So I think we need, we should give a shout out to George, sure. George Nastos. Yes, is the lead guitar player, and it says here that you know he was Rick's guitar tech for many many yes, years. Yes, I did read that, and then he moved into the the role. Um, a, in 2012, it's so because it, you know, which is interesting that Matt that Matt Bissonette was the former guitar player for mm-hmm. Rick Springfield, who Matt Bissonette years ago was in David Lee Ross band. Yes, because his brother is Greg Bissonette. Yes, and you also mentioned Tim Pierce, who yeah. who does occasionally play with Rick on some of his albums. I think he was on uh, an album for Rick that came out about seven years ago. So Tim Pierce, as you said, is one of the most highly sought-after session guitarists right. that's uh, that's in the business right now. But um, and then the the bass player is Ziggy. Uh, he's from actually he's from Norway, I think. Uh, but he's been Rick's guitarist for for quite a number of years as well. So the, the you, band, you, you want to try to pronounce this? Well, he goes by Ziggy. Jernson or Zernson or something like yeah, that. Something yeah, something like that. Siggy Zernson. And he's really good. He's got a lot of energy, too. He constantly bounces around the stage, and he's 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 fun to watch. And I was impressed because when when he played the two sets for Paul Young and Tommy Tutone, that he used a different type of bass. He used the slap bass, the fretless bass. Okay. And when he came out and did the set with Rick Springfield, he had a different bass that had frets, and it was it was playing a different sound. But he was playing more of a slap bass, uh, much very similar. If you think of a of a slap bass, think of you know the the theme song of Seinfeld. That's that's considered a slap bass. Okay. All right. Um, but Tommy comes out. He, he he plays a couple songs, and then he goes away, and a couple minutes pass, and then Paul Young comes out. Paul Young still looks great, uh, you know, for a guy who is now, I think he's 69, and had a long career. He's, he was known for, for, for Blue-Eyed Soul. And, again, four songs, came out and played uh, four songs, and started things out. I guess it was probably the song that he was considered, like, his first identified song in the United States. I remember I remember watching the music video. Mm-hmm. This is like 1984ish. So 
So, of course, the his famous, the song the one he's best known for is Every Time You Go. Which he closed the show. Right. Let's go with. But I did see this one first. Okay. I, I knew who he was because of this song and the video. Right. I shut my eyes and I fantasize that you're here with me. Will you ever return? I won't be satisfied till you're by my side. Yeah, and I, I give I give Paul Young a lot of credit because you know he's out there, and the guy's out there, and he's twirling the microphone stand, and he's doing spins, and it's warm outside, you know, and he's and he's dressed, he's got on a blazer, you know, he's got on jeans, you know, he's not dressed for, uh, he, he's getting a workout up there because it was right. hot, it was hot at the beginning of the show, um, and and Paul Young is a guy who, uh, you know in his personal life sadly lost his wife a couple of years ago um his wife that he'd been married to for for many many years i think 40 or 45 years so uh that he's that he's out there now on tour and he just seemed to be having a good time you know mm-hmm. the the voice at once he started getting into it he started pounding and out the the the, the words yeah, you could tell he, he got better and better as the set went on and um like I said, I think had he been able to play, eh, if he'd been out there and done eight, nine songs, it just seemed like his his voice got a little stronger each with each song that he that he played. So this is what he came out with to, to open it again. This is "Come Back and Stay." Um, it's my favorite Paul Young song. Do you? you, you like I, that I like one? that song. And okay. I, maybe it's just because it it takes me back, you know, okay. to when I saw the video. You know, every time you go is of course a remake of, of a Hall Notes song mm-hmm. and it, it it's a better version. I mean right. I, I like it better than when I've even heard Hall Notes do it in concert. Right. And but I, I don't know. I to to me that that comeback um and stay is it's it has that sound. It it does. It's got a little bit more of a timeless sound to it whereas this one here, which is I'm gonna tear your playhouse down which was a big hit in the UK and the United States. And this song, I think, which I enjoyed it when it when it hit the charts. And this was nineteen, I'm going to say eighty nine. Uh, I think it was that late, eighty eight uh, or eighty nine. You can look that up. I prove, me, up. prove me right or wrong. I think it was a little earlier. But this one sounds a little bit more dated than "Come Back and Stay." "Come Back and Stay," it, like I said, is a little bit more of a timeless song. And "Every Time You Go Away," which is the song that he closed the set out with, that is. To me, that's an all-time classic. Uh, as you had said, written by Daryl Hall and John Oates, that they had recorded first, but Paul Young was the guy who took it and and took it to number one. And Daryl Hall says, you know, thank you because it, <laughs> it flopped for us and you guys are the ones that made money for me as, as a songwriter. But this is I'm Gonna Tear Your Playhouse Down. 
And, you know, eventually he, he even though he said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep everything upbeat, but this is a song that everybody seems to, to always want to hear all the time. Right. But that's good. All right, I take it back. This is my favorite Paul Young song. <laughs> it's a beautiful song. It, what, I know that, you know, as the story goes, that, you know, Daryl Hall and John Oates used to labor so much over the material that they wrote in the 1970s. And it wasn't until they got into their, kind of their friendship, partnership with, um, you know the two ladies that that they knew. One of which was Daryl Hall's uh, girlfriend at the time, Sarah. Uh, and who was the the sister? I'm trying to remember what her name was. So, I, yeah, because well, the the sister actually, I think, was a much more proficient. She wrote more writer. songs. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, I did look it up. So I'm going to tear your playhouse down by Paul Young, 1984. You're kidding. I kid you not. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I don't know that Paul Young was really on my radar much after 85, 86. Okay. All right. Yeah, so, um, but this was this was a really Isn't good the internet song. great? We can prove each other Absolutely. wrong. <laughs> you know, we, there, there was a time where we would argue about these things. And I'm not going to edit this out. <laughs> right. Because I'm sure as soon as it came out of my mouth, the listeners are like, what are you talking about 1989? <laughs> Come on, man. What's wrong with you, Scott? All right, so every time you go away, Paul Young. Although, without the lyrics, this was the song that was played at the end of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I don't know if you remember I that. I couldn't that, have said that. That version, and that came out in 1987. So here's where I got influenced song-wise uh, from what I watched on YouTube when I went back and I saw the concert that Scott was at, and, and I based it solely by what I watched. I thought he did a better job with come back and stay. Okay. To me, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I just, I just like the the performance better. But hearing the the original version, you know, the studio version of of Every Time You Go, I mean, that's 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 one of the all time classics. Yeah, it is, and it's a song that that you just don't get tired of. No. I, in my opinion, I. I just think it's one of those beautiful, timeless songs. So speaking of getting tired of, Mm -hmm. so, you know, when you played, you know, Tommy Two-Tone, you know, 8675309Jenny, it's it's a song where when you listen to it, and it's hard to find fault with the song. Right. As far as a a crafted pop song, I, I don't know that it has a flaw, but it's been played so much much like Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll, mm-hmm. that I still like it, I respect it, I, I come back to it, it's like, I, I can't find anything wrong with it, as I just said, but I just get tired of it. I mean, I, I, I can listen to that song once every, I don't know, three months, three, four months, right? and as long as I, I have a break between and I hear it, I'm <laughs> like, okay, 
Yeah, yeah, I remember the song. It takes me back to junior high school. It's a it's a good song. I think I think when people want to kind of tell a story about that time period of the eighties, you know, that nineteen eighty one, nineteen eighty two time period, that that song is often played because it was very popular well, when it, it came sh- out. It should be because that is what was happening at the time. Right. Yeah. So okay. Um, and then Paul Young finishes his set. Did a very nice job. Then we take a little bit of a break. They start cleaning up the, uh, you know, the, the drums, some of the extra uh, musical instruments that are out there. Were people throwing things at the stage that they had to clean things up? Or no, no, no? Not, okay. a, not at all. all right. I didn't know how wild the concert got. <laughs> I, you know, I wasn't there. Um, so everybody's just kind of hanging around, and uh, you know, Amy says to me, she's like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hungry, kind of thirsty, and they had some concession wa- uh, stands, wagons back in the back of the of the fenced-in property. So I was like, ah, you know, it's very popular, and, and they're, na- they're national. Annie Ann's pretzels, you know, anytime you see an Annie Ann's pretzel stand, it's, uh, you know, not a terrible thing to go back there and get get a pretzel. So I'm standing in line to to uh, get my food, and I'm, I'm just ordering my food, and I'm paying for it, and I'm, like, trying to gather everything in my hands. And all of a sudden, Rick Chertoff, Mm-hmm. Comes out on stage oh, wearing really? a Pete Rose Phillies jersey. Rick Chertoff made an appearance. They mentioned that Chert was there. Really? And I'm pretty sure he was the one that introduced them. Okay. So he comes out wearing a Pete Rose old school Phillies baseball jersey. And if there was one, one song that I wanted to hear <laughs> when I was there, they started playing it while I was standing in the uh, Annie Ann's pretzel lines. But... Uh, all of a sudden, here they go. Did you have your pretzel in your hand at this point? Well, I, I went running over to Amy, and I'm singing at the top of my lungs. Were you eating at the same time? No, sir. Oh. I waited. So, Sean, even though the Hooters have probably, next to Van Halen, been mentioned the second record most times on the Gen X Playback Show. Correct. Is this the first time we actually played a Hooters song yes. on the show? Yeah, because when we the early days when we, when we referenced the Hooters, we were not playing music because we did not have permission. Yes. So now that we have permission, this this marks the debut of the, of the Hooters actually playing, so... Those listeners out there who come on, you know, y'all, ever you guys knew who the Hooters were, but th- maybe there's some people in one of the the countries that are listening to us that didn't know who the Hooters were, and there you go. It, it's possible, but I can tell you that the Hooters, after they were popular in the United States, had a whole second life in Europe. Still big in Germany, and they were more popular in Europe in the '90s than they were in the '80s. Mm-hmm. And that's where they actually, when they started to kind of get together again in the early 2000s and tour, they didn't start in the United States. They started in Europe. 
because they were more popular over there overseas. Um, I, I wonder if those of you that listen to this podcast, if you sit there and think to yourself, why do these guys talk about the Hooters so much? I mean, if you actually just looked at the statistical information on the Hooters, I think their highest charting song ever was this one, and I think it only went to number 18 on the charts. Yeah, because, you know, the, the song that they have, as I've said, they've played at every show that they have ever performed as a band, All You Zombies, mm-hmm. wasn't a hit. No. I it, mean, it's it, kind of their signature song, although, and we danced, is, is I think, probably, are you sure that did not chart hard, This that this song actually was higher in the this, charts? This song actually charted huh, higher, I believe. Yeah, uh, I, mean, we I can, mean, it came out later. It, it so did. It probably is, is correct, yeah. Yeah, so... You know we can we can look at the the um, you know the stats on the you know the album that was Nervous Night was the album that both songs were on and we danced. I in. I just as for my show prep because I had very little because Scott's you know kind of talking about the concert. So my prep uh, this afternoon was to listen to the entire album Nervous Night. Okay, and it was wonderful. It's a great. It is a great album. Not a bad song on there. No, and it's, it's funny because the you know the songs at the end of side two. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite song. Well, two of my favorite songs is the one that starts side two, which is hanging on a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Love that song because it's a reggae type yeah. song, and it just shows how. I think part of the reasons why you and I were always drawn to the Hooters is because they had abilities to play multiple styles. And I know that was something that you were always, and I'm going to throw another band's name out there, but when they came out with the album Porno Graffiti mm-hmm. was the band Extreme. Yep. And I remember you raved about the fact that they don't play just one straightforward style of music. Correct. Like they have all these different types of sounds. Like They really put some effort into making this mm-hmm. album. And I think the Hooters fall into that same category. They can play reggae. They play ska. They can play straight rock or power pop. You know, they've wrote some of the great timeless songs and they actually played uh, two of their songs that they wrote for other artists. They played time after time. That's, you know, that, you know, one of these signature songs of Generation X. And they also played uh, Joan Osborne's, for, you know, the, uh, Eric Bazilian sang because he wrote One of Us, mm-hmm. which came out in the mid-90s and, and won him a, a bunch of awards. So they are... I think in musical realms, they are very well respected and they can still go out and they're, they're just like you said about a profession, professional musicians. They were, you know, musicians who made money on the side playing for other people. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how they got uh, their, their national album deal was through their work with Cindy Lauper. They had come out with an album in 1983 that was called Amore. That was huge. In Philadelphia. I would hear it on WMMR. I mean, I still remember the song Concubine that they would play. And they, uh, you know, it was a locally released album that did extremely well. But yet they still couldn't get that, they couldn't get that that national music contract. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until after they worked with Cyndi Lauper on She's So Unusual that then they decided, then, you know, the next year they come out with Nervous Night. And then now all of a sudden they are seen more on the national scene. And fortunately for them, being from Philadelphia, they actually got to open Live Aid in Philadelphia when it's when it uh, happened back in you know 
1985. So right. Uh, so that you know that was something I was you know was going to point out. Um, of the four artists that you saw, three were at Live Aid. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, just- uh, because you know Paul Young was was a lot bigger in the UK, mm-hmm. you know, than what he was in the US. So he was he was one of the main acts. You know, obviously, with him, he did the solo set, and then he also. Um, uh, do they know it's Christmas? Was mm-hmm. they they performed that on stage there at Wembley, and he was part of that. As you know, he's one of the featured singers in that song. Right. And then, of course, the Hooters. I think a lot of people forget that they were the opening band in Philadelphia. Yeah, and they weren't really known nationally at the time. And this was the Live Aid was kind of the launch of Nervous Night. That was after that. All You Zombies came out on MTV. Got a lot of play on MTV. But they were, like I said, they were a band that was, at least in our area, you know, if you're, those of you that are listening in Philly, you think back in the day, the Hooters were unbelievably popular. See, and that's why, because I was so young when the Hooters came out, right, before Nervous Night even hit. And, you know, I'm hearing them on radio all the time. In my head, I just thought they were big. I mean, I didn't realize that they were strictly a Philadelphia uh, and, and surrounding area band because you just knew who they were. And that wasn't uncommon back in the day. I think the Hooters may have been one of the last regional acts like that to have such a following. And I know I, I can't speak for this personally, but I know from hearing stories about the band Sticks because Sticks was from Chicago mm-hmm. and that they were so big in Chicago before they made it nationally. And I guess that happened with a lot of, you know, a lot of a lot of acts back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, particularly in the early, you know, the 70s through the early 80s, that there were a lot of regional acts like that that were extremely popular in certain markets. Right. You know, being, you know, considering that their hometown. Like I know, uh, you know, Kicks is a band that we saw in concert, mm-hmm. that they were huge down in like the Baltimore into southern Pennsylvania area. So we, we followed them throughout their whole career. Right. And, and the Hooters falls into that category as well. Right. So... They, you said they, they what, played like six songs? Was that what it was? Well, yeah. So they played, they started with Day by Day. They played Satellite, and that was off the One Way Home album, which was the, the second national mm-hmm. album. That was the tour that I saw them on concert, in concert back in 1987. No, that was 1988. I, I apologize. That was 1988 that I saw them at Franklin and Marshall College in, uh, in Lancaster. So they were... Um, they played Satellite. They played Carla with a K. They played a song off of their new album. They did the uh, the two songs, One of Us and Time After Time. Although I have to hand it to them. They did a, a different version of Time After Time. It was a little more upbeat. And even Rick Springfield on his show on Sirius XM, he does a weekly show. And he'll uh, one of the episodes, he was talking about this 80s uh, tour. And he even mentioned, he goes, yeah, they do. They play a version of Time After Time that, that you have to really hear it to appreciate it. Okay. And, and I thought, yeah, no, they, they actually did a, a really cool job of putting a different spin on on a, on a song that was, that was extremely popular. So. 40 years ago. Yeah. So if you're having to play something for 40 years, you know, you want to kind of keep it fresh and interesting for yourself. So, yeah, I mean, I, I did not watch... I take that back. I, I, I said I, I think I saw the their set. I did not see that 
uh, video from that song. So when we're finished, I'll go back and watch that one just because I didn't realize it was a different version. Yeah. And they, uh, I think it's also important to mention the fact that the band has pretty much stayed intact mm-hmm. for many, many years, decades. Uh, you know, the, the, the two driving forces behind the music and the, and the songwriting are Eric Bazilian and Rob Hyman. Correct. Uh, you know, Eric play, both guys play all kinds of instruments. They play anything from the accordion to they, the, the, the instrument that their band name is created from, which is the hooter, which is kind of like, you know, you think of the, the kitar. Right. Well, just picture a kitar for your mouth. And right. you can play, uh, play like a piano and you're blowing into it. That's a hooter. So, uh, you know, they both play it at different points. Uh, Bazillion is a guitarist, plays the sax plays the hooter, plays the accordion. Rob Hyman plays the keyboards, plays the accordion, plays the hooter. I mean, these guys are unbelievable musicians. And then you go over to the the guitar section, and you have John Lilly. Mm-hmm. John Lilly has been around. He's been with the band since 1983. And at one point, Amy and I looked at each other. I'm like, is that the same? And I'm like, it's got to be. It's, it's just got to be. Because the thing I remember about John Lilly is when I saw him in concert, back in 1988 was the fact that he has a very distinct playing style. Like the way he stands, he stands very upright and his feet are extremely close together. He looks like, you know, if you walked up behind him, you could like push him over. Okay. But he just has this really unique kind of playing style where he keeps everything in really tight on his, on his body. I'm like, that's gotta be, gotta be the same guy. We looked it up. Yeah. It was John John Lilly. And, uh, you know, John's got on a silver suit. Looks, I mean, the guys look good. Um, and then Fran Smith is the bassist, and he's been with them since 1987. He um, he took over for Andy King. Now, Andy King was the bassist for Nervous Night and when they recorded One Way Home, but he decided to leave the band uh, midway through the tour in uh, when they were coming when they were doing the One Way Home tour. And then Fran Smith took over and has been with them ever since. Mm-hmm. So, and then, of course, you have David Osikinen, who's the who's the drummer, and he's been with them since they started in, 19, in 1980. Right. I learned something very interesting about Dave. Okay. Um, so after the Hooters kind of went their separate ways in the in the late 90s, he, got, he was a part of this test group that was coming up with new types of musical technology. Something you may have heard, which is called MP3. <laughs> yeah. He was on the test group that came up with MP3. Really? Yeah. Wow. And, and he actually has his career right now. Yeah, he plays on the Hooters on the side for fun, for giggles. But his actual job is he's he's done numerous tech projects. I guess he's like some kind of a computer genius because he actually moved back to Philadelphia. He lived out in California with his wife, and then they moved back to Philadelphia. And he's been working for you know, uh, in the technology field pretty much since he moved back. But David Osikinen was part of the group that created the MP3 format, which I thought was amazing. See, now, you, you could have saved that one for that episode you want to come up with, with, you know, behind, you know, did you know, whatever you were going to have. But that, I know a lot about the Hooters. Like, everything you set up to that point, I knew. But yeah. that was brand new to me. I, I just found that amazing, that, that you know, that has that local connection uh, you know, MP3 really has changed everything 
when it when it comes to recording and re- when it comes to digital music they are the they are the pioneers of digital music as you know it today so it you know when i said that i listened to nervous night uh today and i went on youtube um found found something that uh, you know the full album i'm listening to it there was a pause between side a and side b Okay. So whoever uploaded this thing had to do something. And I don't know if they intentionally did it to, you know, kind of give me the feel that I was like flipping the tape over, <laughs> but there was an actual pause. Um, you, you know, that's certainly not the current world. You know, talk about the MP3 world and um, the digital world. Uh, to me, there was just something kind of charming about hearing that, that there was this little bit of like, a slight hiccup as as things got you know situated for side B, but uh, yeah, the uh, the MP3 um, players and files that it's it's changed the music as we know it. Absolutely, uh, so, you know. So they go through this really really strong set, and again, Eric Bazilian just had a birthday; he just turned seventy years old. Rob Hyman seventy three. I mean, these guys. The energy that they can still put out there in concert, to me, it just really impresses me because they are, they're out there. And I always thought that, um, you know, Bazillion was one of those types of performers that you're just kind of, you're kind of drawn to him. It just seems like he's having such a good time up there. And anytime you watch a guy that can play three or four or five instruments, you're impressed. It's like, man, that guy's, that guy's skilled. And, uh, you know, he just... They seem like they were having so much fun. Now, you know, Rob is always the serious one. I, I don't think he ever cracks a smile on stage. I don't think I've ever seen him crack a smile on stage. Right. But I think that's part of his persona. But I'll say this. Rob Harmon was very well dressed. Okay. Uh, he had on a, a, I didn't think about it when I watched always, the video. If you ever see anything. He had like sweatpants on. I remember seeing that. He does, but he's, but he's wearing a suit. Okay. But the one, thing, the one thing about Rob is he is always impeccably dressed. And he's always been like that throughout his entire career. Um but yeah, and I you just, said Dave had like a Pep Boys T-shirt on. Dave was wearing a Manny Moe and Jack T-shirt, yeah, yeah, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. Uh, you know, Manny Moe and Jack, the Pep Boys, um, you know, just just a tip of the cap to uh, to our area. So, uh, auto parts store for those of you, around, you know, other parts of the country or world who don't know what we're talking about. And you know, I I think it's appropriate to to kind of play the song that they ended the show with. They ended their set. This might, for me, for the national fans, this might be their signature song. This really got the place going. a well-crafted pop song. All right, my, my favorite part's coming up. So leave this in here. 
I just think that whole second verse is just so well written. Oh yeah. Even down to the yeah. <laughs> Throw it in there. Just almost haphazardly, but it's like perfect. It's yeah, like I said, it's it's such a well crafted song and I think you Gen Xers, if you had MTV back at the time when this when this video came out, this this video was played a lot. Yeah. And I can tell you, uh, it was it was filmed locally. Uh, you know, just about an hour away from where we're at now in Chester County at the old abandoned Exton Drive-In movie theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can actually still see the sign at the beginning of the music video. I knew, I, I worked with a guy for many years that claims, <laughs> I don't know this for sure, but uh, he tells the story uh, that he was at the filming of that music video because he grew up in Exton. I knew he grew up there. And he said that, because uh, he was a few years older than me, so he would have been when they did this video he probably would have been about 20 or 21 okay when the uh, when the video was made so you're talking 1985 uh when when the video is made and he said so they all all them and their friends and they all went to the to the driving theater and they said yeah they played the song and then they played it again and then they played it again and they played it again and they played it again and he said it went all night they played, I think they started, it was like dusk of the night before, and the scene at the end of the video, that's actually the sunrise because it's five or six in the morning. And they basically went for 12 hours nonstop where they just kept shooting and reshooting and reshooting and reshooting. Uh, and he said it just, they must have played the song over and over again probably 20 or 30 times before they finally got the uh, the final takes that they wanted. And he also said that, the scene where the motorcycle gang is riding through the crowd, that was not a part of the video. That that actually just happened that these bikers just started riding through. They came off the highway there on Lincoln Highway, Route 30, and that they started riding around. They said that was not expected. But they said it was such a such a cool moment that they kept it and then they worked it in with the rest of the music video. But, uh, you know, the Motorcycle Gang was not originally part of that music video. It's kind of neat. According to Brian Craven. So, <laughs> um, but I thought that was, I thought that was pretty cool. But, you know, the, the Hooters are, are a band that are very near and dear to our hearts. Like I said, I saw them in concert, you know, 30 plus years ago. And it was cool to see them play again. And they still, in my opinion, they still got it. Sure. And you would have seen them, was it your senior year? It was actually my junior year. It was, okay. it was the summer of 1988. Okay. So it was like right around May, June of 1988. So the junior year was coming to an end. Right. Um, and I saw with my friends Dan Zare and Cornell Kurtz, if okay. you guys are listening to the to the Gen X Playback Show. So shout out to you guys. We had a blast when we saw them play in concert. And that was one of the cool things about the Hooters is Franklin and Marshall College, the 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 auditorium there is called Mazer Gymnasium. And that's what it is. It's a gymnasium. It's not a real big venue. I think, you know, max seating might have been about, couple, you know, maybe a couple thousand. We had, I mean, we were right there, right there. And we were down on the floor 
on the basketball floor and and we we were dancing with these college girls and we were top of the world because sure. I'm a high school kid and I'm dancing with college girls. I thought that was great, uh, you know. But we're literally like, you know, I don't know, maybe 20 yards away from the stage, and you know, I, I credit the Hooters for not necessarily going big time. I mean, that was it was it was a college atmosphere and 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 they were great and we had a blast and they played for like two and a half hours that night. They played uh, just about every song that they had recorded. They played in that concert, so but they were limited in this one because you know Rick Springfield was the headliner, mm-hmm. but they didn't disappoint. I think a lot of people like Amy and I, I think a lot of us came came there to that concert because we wanted to see the Hooters. Yeah, had I gone to the show, that's who I would have gone to see. Yeah, so you know they 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 stop and then there's there's a pretty long break at this point. I think there was it was about maybe thirty minutes. Time to go get another pretzel. So we, I mean, we just kind of hung around. We 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 talked to a lot of people that were there, and everybody just kind of had the same vibe. And I think that was the one of the, to me, one of the enjoyable parts of the concert was kind of hanging out with people. Sure. And we're all, you know, we're all about the same age, you know, in our our fifties and sixties. Now, did you see any um, people our age with their kids there? Yes. Okay. Not a lot, but I would say, you know, they're probably about maybe 15 or 20. There, there were younger people there. And um, my daughter, Allison, is a huge Rick Springfield fan, actually. Now, she just had a baby, so, I, you know, I have another grandchild. But it was funny because I did record when he, when he does sing Jesse's Girl. That's like her, one of her favorite songs ever. Like show that's uh, it might be her favorite song of all time that and uh, to, uh, Africa by Toto she loves those two songs okay. and uh, she said to me she goes well Dad why haven't you sent me the rec- of him doing Jesse's Girl yet and I'm like oh you know I'm sorry and then I and then I sent it to her and uh, you know but she, that's one of she's 24 years old that's one of her favorite songs ever. If not, her well, favorite song. And because, you know, the, the concert that I was at, you know, at Guns N' Roses, there was a lot of that. You know, the um, it, was a, it was a lot of 50-year-olds with their 20-something-year-old kids, mm-hmm. you know, kind of going together. Because I, I don't think that there's that true concert experience among the younger generations with the, their artists. I mean, sure, they put on concerts, but it's not the same thing. It's not a rock and roll show. It's It's not... An event. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we were, there's some downtime and we're all just kind of hanging out and, and standing around. And then all of a sudden the video screen kind of lights up and it starts playing some, uh, it, it was actually kind of a funny retrospective where it's people mentioning Rick Springfield, but it's in a way of like putting him down. Mm-hmm. And it's all these clips from like movies and TV shows. And there's, I guess there was a scene in the last action hero with Arnold Schwarzenegger where he's in the movie as himself. And I, I guess he, in the movies, like ticked off because they always want him to sing Jesse's Girl. He's like, come on, okay. I already sung it. You know, that kind of thing. It was, uh, you know, he, he, he has a funny way. He has a sense of humor about himself. And he's even made uh, comments about, oh, you know, he, he did, a, a, did a song and I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit later but you know they 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 start this video and then all of a sudden the first song 
on the set. One of my favorites. Oh, yeah. Very underrated song. This is off the album, I believe it's called Living in Oz. This came out in 1983. This song was actually on the Sky High mixtape Summer 1983. Good song to start the concert out. Sure. And I think this is this is where it needs to be mentioned in regards to Rick Springfield's music because I don't think he gets his credit due as far as being considered a rock and roll musician. I mean when you when you think of the name Rick Springfield, Sean, what kind of stands out to you is yeah, he's had he had a lot of top forty hits, but would you consider him a rock and roller? Probably not. You know, he, he, he was considered kind of a, um, a, a pinup guy. Yeah. You know, he, he was a, a teen heartthrob. And, and I know that he was older when he broke. I mean, he was early 30s. He's in his 30s, yeah. So, it, you know, I, I did see a documentary on him where they, they talk about when he first came over to the United States, early 70s, when he was in his early 20s, where that's what they tried to make him into. Yeah. I mean, he was going to be... You know, on the cover of Team Beat. Yes. I mean, that was the idea. And, you know, that as, you know, the career kind of takes off, eventually, it is rock music. It, it's, it's, it's pop music. And, you know, they, you know, we talk about how Neil Gerardo is the original guitar player, like uh, on that first album. Mm-hmm. You know, eventually it's Tim Pierce. The, uh, that guitar you just heard was Tim Pierce. But on the original album, it was Neil. You know, Neil was working with Pat Benatar. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, certainly she wasn't, you know, she was considered a straight-up rock performer. And, I mean, the guitars are definitely harder rock. Now, that being said, because of his image, and I think he tried to fight against the image somewhat because he was such a good-looking guy, that that's what was always put out there. I I would agree with you. And, and I think that was one thing that stood out to me in the concert itself was how much of it was guitar driven yeah and how much of it had i guess you could call it a pop rock sound because obviously you can't get away from the hooks that make these songs popular but what stood out to me was that live they um they just have more of an edge sound to them as opposed to like this the song affair of of the heart is in my opinion, one of my favorite Rick Springfield songs, but you really don't you really don't hear the bite of the guitars like you would necessarily hear it live. And I think that's that's kind of what stood out to me was the fact that um, you know the guitar was was just all over the place during this during this concert. And uh, he also I think one of the one of the next songs that he played after that, and, and he introduces it, and it's not a song that he wrote. It was a song that his good friend Sammy Hagar wrote. Sammy was known as a rock and roll musician, but this was this was on Working Class Dog as mm-hmm. well. And you can hear the guitars in here, but it just it doesn't jump out at you like it does in concert. This was the first single released off the album. It yeah. wasn't Jesse's Girl.
And I, I, I got to hand it to him because Rick Springfield, at the end of this month in, in August of 2023, is about to turn 74 years old. And he met, and he mentions it. He goes, I can't hide it. And he goes, people have the internet. Right. He goes, I'm going to turn 74 years old. And he goes, I can't believe where the, you know, where the time is going. It's like, I'm 74 years old. And, but these guys and all the performers out there, they're showmen. You know, it's like the, the Hooters are jumping around. Springfield's jumping all. I couldn't believe how much energy uh, a guy had that's been doing it as long as he has. And I think maybe that's part of the reason why they don't necessarily tour constantly. Okay. And I think I've always had this theory, and I shared this theory with you about when when you don't constantly tour, it does take because your vo- your vocals are a tool, and if you don't use your vocals all the time that tool suffers a little bit. It does, yeah. But I think what what suffers in terms of the vocals, the rest of the body has the opportunity to heal and allow him to go out and jump around. And it was an extremely high energy uh, output from, from Rick. And I just thought, you know, it was uh, very entertaining to see him doing his thing and, and he's out there and, and he, you could tell he was they're out the band's out there and they're and they're giving hundred percent. Mm-hmm. They're not mailing it in. Yeah, you know the. I remember the song coming out. Uh, you know, after Jesse's Girl got big, I think they kind of re-released it. They did, yeah. And I, you know, but in this little documentary that I saw, they they talked about how the record company released that song first, and the they were interviewing Rick's you know former manager, and he was saying that. It was it was basically like a radio station out of Philadelphia mm-hmm. picked Jesse's girl and said, "You guys, I think it was RCA was the was the the record company. You have missed the boat. That's the hit, but that's still a great song. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, you know, going back in time when they when they re released it, it was all over the radio again. Yeah, I don't know where it charted the second time, or it, even if it did or not. But you know, it that that was a song that did nothing for Sammy Hagar." You know, when he first released it, and you know, Sammy, you know, he's has done that in concert for years. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's always done that song. Right. Except when he was in Van Halen, you know, that's always been part of the set list. And it, it, it's, um, it's, it was a hit. I mean, it, that definitely was something that I think deserves to be in, in Rick's current set list of hits. Yeah. Yeah. At one point, he, he says, you know, oh, you know, give us an opportunity where they're, they're going to play something off their new album. And he goes, you know, we just try and want to, do fresh material so that it keeps us interested and excited. So we're excited to play this song. So they played a song off of their new album and the song's called automatic and, and we listened to it and uh, it, it's definitely going for the, the sound of today. And then afterwards, as I said, you know, he's not afraid to poke fun at himself and he's like, you know, I really appreciate you guys listening to this. <laughs> he goes in the 1970s in the early 1970s, I went to an Elton John concert and he, he said, Elton says, I'm going to play something off my new album. And he goes, I got up and went to the bathroom. <laughs> and he said, I'm standing in line in the bathroom. And the guy in front of me turns and looks at me and he goes, new song, right? <laughs> and he's like, yep. And so he goes, you know, thank you everybody for staying in your seats and, and, and letting us play the song. So yeah, he would mix jokes like that in. And even, he even told a, a story about um, when he, when he's playing uh, don't talk to strangers 
And at one point, he's got the girl singing. And at another point, he's got the guy singing. He goes, hey, you know, 40 years ago in my concert, you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference because, you know, you had 13-year-old girls singing with 12-year-old boys, and they probably all sounded the same. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, he, he acknowledges the fact that his concerts back then were, were probably, you know, teeny bopper type type concerts. Although I think, didn't Lori see our sister Lori? She did. She saw him play. In, she in saw concert. him during the working class dog tour. Okay. And and I think if I if I remember correctly, I had to ask her, but back when they were doing concerts at City Island. Yes. Uh, that, that's that's where she saw him at. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, it was Rick Springfield and the Greg Kin band opened. Okay. Yeah, I I, I do remember that. So uh, one of the one of the highlights of the night was another song that he did off the Living in Oz album. This song was great live. And it's at this point that, you know, when he's singing the chorus, he jumps down into the crowd. Yep. And he's walking around and he's, you know, he's singing, we all need human touch. And he's, you know, touching people that are and the, <laughs> I swear I saw somebody like a, a lady pass out. <laughs> she, she was like, oh, Lord, is she down? I thought she went down. Um, but it was it was just, you know, fun moment. And then I think at one point. He actually said, all right, put me back gently. And he, people lifted him back up onto the stage again. So, or, or is that, did he actually have a body? I think he had a bodyguard literally like carry him like a baby. Uh, I, I didn't see that part. I, I saw the, uh, the video clip where he's going through the crowd. And I remember thinking to myself when he went down and into the crowd, and I'm, I'm like, it's so nice that we're so removed from COVID. Yes. In 2023 that you can go down there and touch people again. Yes. And it, I, I that's a good point because the whole music industry, seeing a concert uh, three years ago mm-hmm. was almost impossible. Well, I, I, you didn't. There yeah. weren't concerts three years ago. And if there were, I, you had to watch them either on TV or they started showing concerts, uh, I think, or movies and stuff, but you had to keep distance from everybody. Right. So I can tell you that our seats, our original seats that we had for this concert, were about 20 rows back dead center, okay? And we were squished in there like sardines, so much to so to the point that we ended up, we were more comfortable sitting back further. We sat in cheaper seats because nobody was back there. So we ended up sitting about maybe 30 or 40 rows back as opposed to 20 rows back. But we still had a great time anyway because you you the venue's not that big. You can still see the stage and everybody on on stage. So it wasn't it wasn't bad at all. But yeah, at one point when I sat down for Tommy Tutone, I mean we were smashed in there and it was not comfortable. I wasn't gonna be standing up anywhere. Uh we could jump around and dance around and, and have more fun uh, you know, in the back. See, so. that's that's where my brother and I are different, where I love that stuff. Yeah, I, I I like being smashed in up front and sm- and you know, getting to meet new people and you know it's the you know always I I was talking to um, um a, a coworker before I I left to to go to the Guns N' Roses show, and this 
this guy is somebody who does not like crowds, you know, the complete opposite, you know, kind of an introvert and, you know, his, the, where he would panics is, is if he has to go to a crowd, I'm like, I'm going to go do something in a few hours that I will absolutely love. And you would absolutely hate. <laughs> you know, and I said, I'm going to, you know, come away with some new friends and, and uh, you know, some shared experiences. Yeah. So, you know, he, he goes from, from playing songs like, like that off a very successful album that that living in oz album doesn't get a whole lot of recognition today but he got nominated for a grammy for for that album that's a good album it, it is a very good album and shortly after that in 1983 and 1984 uh, he decides to go into the movie business mm-hmm. and he makes a movie that he still bad mouths to this day he even said it when he's in concert he goes you know in 1984 I made a movie called Hard to Hold. And he goes, well, at least we got a song out of it. <laughs> uh, you know, it was it was a movie that just got roasted by the critics. I saw that movie. It wasn't uh, terrible. It wasn't. It wasn't as bad as some of the other movies that were I out didn't there. I did pay for it in the theater. No, I mean, I saw it on Prism. On Prism yeah. But, you know, it, it wasn't horrible. No, but it, it did produce a pretty cool song. And, I, and this is one of my favorite Rick Springfield songs. And a cool video. It had a lot of the movie clips. Yeah. And I think... I think at this point, you know, he had he had the three albums before, and he had the movie. You could probably say this was probably the height of his popularity when this movie is released. Now, the movie doesn't do well, and I think he kind of recoils a little bit. He still makes some music. It has a couple of hit albums, but when this song is released and the video hits MTV, this is probably Rick Springfield at the top. I, w- I would agree. I, I would agree. I mean, that's. I mean, obviously, he was Noah Drake. You know, he was an actor beforehand. Uh, but but this was kind of him cashing in, you know, on his celebrity and, and starring in a movie. And, and I'll also add, in addition to this song off of this album, which, you know, like you say, it's one of his best songs. I think an underrated Rick Springfield song was off that album, Bop To You Drop. And he played that in his medley. I, I always liked that song. He, he, did a, he did a medley where he, he included a lot of songs, and Bop To You Drop was one of them. And you're right. That was a song that I, I think is, is a very underrated uh, Rick Springfield song, and I think he did a great job of kind of putting almost every hit song in his set. You know, he didn't avoid anything, even if he put it in a uh, like a one one verse and a chorus medley. I thought he did a great job with that because it just he played for ninety minutes and it went fast. Okay, I just remember that was the one thing that stood out to me was how quickly it moved. It's not. It didn't drag on. Where we're like yawning, looking at our. Hey, we're old people, Rick. I know you're having fun up there, but it's close to our bedtime. Um, but I thought that he did. He really kept the energy up, and consequently kept our energy up as as uh, you know people in the crowd. So that was uh, you know, love somebody off of his hard to hold soundtrack, which was. Yeah, the movie didn't do quite as well, but the soundtrack was very... I think he got nominated for an Academy Award for that song. Didn't that movie star Mrs. Keith Richards? Wasn't she... uh, 
she was uh, like one of the, uh, she wasn't like the love interest, but she was kind of like the, I don't know. I just remember her, her having a role in that. Okay. Uh, it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I want to play one of the other songs that what it was one of my favorites uh, that he did live. And this is also another one that goes back quite a bit. Again, listen to the guitars. So again, you know, you just one of the things that really jumps out at you is, is the guitars on these songs. It's like, man, I don't remember the the raw guitar sound like I did in the concert. And I liked it. I really liked the, the the fact that it had such such a garage band sound to it. I've always been drawn to live. I love live music. Always have. I know you do too. Sure. I think a lot of, of Rick's sound stems from the fact that he's a guitar player. Yes. So, and he writes a lot of his own songs, most of his songs. So, you know, it's it's guitar driven. You know, I was. You should talk about him being self-deprecating mm-hmm. in a way. He, you know, he was interviewed with that um, with the documentary that I saw on um, the the one the studio where he recorded you know a lot of his albums, and. Um, Keith Olsen was his producer, you know, mm-hmm. very well-known producer. And, you know, they, they they were saying, like, with Neil Gerardo, how did Neil come into the project? And Rick is, oh, because Keith hated my guitar playing. And that's, you know, he, that, you know, where, you know, he wanted to probably be more of a guitar player than, you know, kind of the pretty boy singing out front. I think that's probably where he would have been comfortable in the early years. He was not front and center. The, the first band that he was... A part of that was a recording act was down in Australia, and it was called Zoot. That yeah. was that was the name of the band that he was a part of, and he was not the lead singer. He was not the front man. He was the lead guitarist. Yeah, I mean he's a good guitar player. I mean, it, is he at the same level as you know Neil Gerardo or, or Tim Pierce? No, he's not. It, but but very few are. But if you notice, in a lot of he does play a lot of his solos in his songs. Now he doesn't necessarily play like the a, a lot of the rhythm part that is usually the other guys that will take part of that but many of the solos that he plays in his songs especially the ones that he writes he typically will take over the the solos for for those particular songs Mm -hmm. he did for jesse's girl he did for love is all right tonight um he did that for i've done everything for you you know it's it's when he does it live when he did it live he he doesn't necessarily do all of the guitar work, but he'll typically jump in and do the solos. Okay. So I, which I thought was interesting. So, you know, we, we've been going for 90 minutes and you know, it's kind of funny. 
he didn't do Jesse's Girl up until it, 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 you know it's like he's doing the concert and you got all the hit songs and he's like I think he I think he played this Love Is Alright Tonight and he's like thank you everybody good night <laughs> and then he walks off right. and then all of a sudden immediately the screen lights up behind him and it's all these different people that have recorded Jesse's Girl and they're doing their versions of Jesse's Girl. I, I couldn't even tell you who, who it was because it was so many so fast. And they're all singing their version of of Jesse's Girl. And it was it was funny because, eh, you know, after about maybe a minute or so, all of a sudden, he jumps out and he's back on stage again. He kind of jumps in right about this point in the song. Everybody was waiting for this, and now he's finally playing it. Yeah, this was the song that made him a superstar. Oh, absolutely. Um, Talk about timing. The the guitar solo in this that Neil Gerardo pulls off is one of the best ever. Yeah, and if you if you're familiar with Neil Neil Gerardo Gerardo's work with Pat Benatar, you can hear the sound. Mm-hmm. The, the guitar his guitar is very distinct. Like you can you can hear a Neil Neil Gerardo uh, guitar solo. And I've heard Neil interviewed with Tim Pierce, and he said that people don't play the solo right. It's, it's like no one ever gets it right. And he says he intentionally will get pulled up on stage, right? So so he, if he happens to be around, Rick will have him at the show, and he comes out and he plays a song. And he said, Rick's guitar players are always watching at the solo. He can say, I always turn my back. <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> I turn away from the crowd, the guitars, and face the speakers, and I rip into the guitar solo. Yeah, this is, this is the song that I think... 95% of the crowd was waiting for to have him go out there and at, at this point his shirt's off you know, he's playing bare chested yeah this just sounds so much like Neil Giraldo totally but here's the thing Scott and this is, you would not hear this ever today, in the middle of a pop song, mm-hmm. to have a guitar solo like that. I mean, th- there's just no way that, that, that I don't care, that would just never happen. Yeah. Yep. And it was, I, I would say, it, it's great to have a, a concert like that where, Everybody is just everybody's on their feet at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't had a concert that much. I mean, we went and saw we went and saw Sticks and Ario Speedwagon a couple of years ago at the York Fair, and that was a good concert. They, those guys, those guys really did a great. I mean, they did a great job, especially Sticks. I was blown away by how good Sticks was after all these years. I'm like, wow. I mean, those guys re- still really sound on top of their game. Um, but it wasn't as much fun as this one. This, this this concert was more fun, I think, 
than than listening to two really good bands in in Sticks and Ario Speedwagon. But this this one to me was kind of like a party. That's what you want. It, it was it was like a party. It I I don't know. It just seemed like everybody was more in tune with each other, um, having more fun with each other. People that you never you you had said you're going to go down and make friends that sure. you never uh, people that you never met before. Yeah, you know, I I don't remember talking to anybody besides who we went to the concert with at the York Fairgrounds with Sticks and Aria Speedwagon. This were here we were talking to everybody. Right. It just seemed like a, a much more relaxed. Why do you think vibe. that was? You know, I, I wondered, I thought about that, and I, I don't know if maybe it had to do with, um, you know, Aria Speedwagon and Sticks were considered edgier, you know, back in, especially their 70s material. They're more of a rock and roll band. And I don't know that rock and roll, people that followed rock and roll groups back in those days were, I don't know, I, you and I saw concerts uh, like when we saw Poison in Philadelphia at the Spectrum. I don't remember us having interaction with people around us then either. I, I don't know. Maybe it was just the the kind of crowd that went to go see the concert. I I really I haven't been able to pinpoint why why it may have been the case. I because you know I was wondering is it because you know I, I talked about the COVID situation. You know people are now back again, and you know we realize this is something that was taken from us, and now it's we're kind of enjoying getting together. At least at least the Gen Xers. Um, I mean, I think there's a whole generation of Gen Z that has now become uh, recluse because of of COVID and the restrictions. Um, where I where because I think Gen X we were socialized and we like to be around one another and other people. I mean, maybe that's a part of it. Um, and you know, it's it, it's. When you talk about the rock influence, you know sometimes rock music can the harder rock music can be kind of a little dark. Mm-hmm. You know it can it can be um, I want to say it, it's not, it can be depressing, but also sometimes and we you know so I saw Guns N' Roses, and I I I mentioned on this podcast in the past that you know what brought me around to Appetite for Destruction in 1987 was the aggression. Mm-hmm. You know it it that it, it lends itself to that style, right? And where a Rick Springfield concert, it's happy music. It is. The Hooters music, it's happy music. It is. You're right. Paul Young, Tommy Two-Tone, I mean, every every one of them, is. it was it was all upbeat. Even even Paul Young was almost apologetic when he did his most, pop, most famous song, Every Time You Go Away. He was almost apologetic. He's like, you know, I wanted to keep this upbeat. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, this is a song that people want to hear. Yeah. And that was probably the only slow song that was from the sung. entire night. From yeah, all the artists—they were all all upbeat, and I think that may have contributed yeah. to it. Yeah, could be. I mean, there was nothing nothing slow uh, in, in the set at all, with the exception of that of that one song. Even one of the better known Hooter songs in this area is a song called "Where Do the Children Go," and it was a charted, you know, a charted in the top forty. Uh, it was a song that was uh, sung. Backup was Patty Smythe from Scandal, and um, you know she was part of that of that song as well. Very well known in this area. They they did not play that in the set when when the Hooters played. So it was all it was all a beat. I think probably for me the the most pleasant surprise was the fact that and and I said before about for the most part we went to go see the Hooters, but I walked away being really entertained by by rick springfield i thought you know the guy brought his a game and 
really, you can understand why there are certain people that are, you know, they kind of get drawn out front and center. They have people that kind of, you kind of can't take your eyes off. And I can understand a guy like, like a Rick Springfield, why he was such a big deal back when he finally had some material that got played on the radio. Because, uh, you know, when you watch him in, on stage and in concert, it's like you your eyes are kind of like fixated on certain people. They have that it factor. Sure. And there's there's something that can be said for that. You, you know, you said that, you know, he struggled with being labeled as, you know, pretty. Right. You know, as being a, an insanely good-looking guy. But there are a lot of artists and performers out there that you wouldn't say are the most gorgeous or the most handsome, but they still have that it, that wow factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't necessarily have the best singing voice, but for whatever reasons, you're just you're you're drawn to their performances. Uh, you know, I would put Springfield in that category where him his performance on stage, you're really paying attention to what he's doing, and you're not necessarily like getting you know getting hypnotized by looking off off stage or uh, you know he 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 still had that it factor to me on in this concert. Well, it sounds like he had a good time, and it it's it's a concert. Um... I kind of wish I had gone to it. You know, I remember I, I went to to the Guns N' Roses with my friend Jeff Wanger, and he's the one who gave me the ticket. And um, I remember I, I told him at the time that you were at this other show, and he's like, "That sounds like a great show." And yep. and we went to this show kind of last minute, where um, his his employees uh, decided to chip in and surprise him with tickets oh, to nice. the show, and yeah. so they gave him two tickets. And so he literally just, you know, sends me a text like like a couple like a day or two before the show. He says, "Can you go to this thing?" And I, I, I kid you not, I I was debating driving up to the show, the one that you went to at the okay. last minute. I I was, it, it was I was thinking, yeah, should I or shouldn't I? I might just go in there and slip in the back and 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 see what was going on. And then then I up going to the other concert. Had a great time, you know. Uh, but this is because I've seen Guns N' Roses before. I mean, I I. Though I enjoy myself, I still think you know I it would it would have been nice to have been at this show. Yeah, and I and I think one of the reasons also why I wanted to mention this is the fact that you know Gen X Gen X culture is still out there. Why can't you know why not celebrate it? You know the fact is this tour is going on for another month and a half, and if you're listening to this on our show, you know you may want to check them out when they when they hit a, a neighboring city because they're working their way out to California. And I think they close with about 10 dates out in California. So it's going to go on to the end of September. And I, I think he does this, you know, every, every year or every other year where he puts this tour together and it may not necessarily be, I, I think at some point the tubes are going to be a part of, of oh, it. Okay. And they're going to, because he had mentioned it in, in his show on Sirius XM. Sounds like the exact type of band that he would have with this tour. Yeah. So, you know, if you have an opportunity to check out the Rick Springfield, I love the eighties tour. I would highly recommend it. And, and hopefully with us kind of doing a little recollection of, of the concert that we saw here on uh, August 11th, 2023, I thought, you know, get an opportunity. If, if you're a fan of any of these bands and their songs, I don't think you'll be disappointed. And here's the thing with all the artists that you saw, they're they're aging we all are aging and i think it's important for us to to see them while we can you talk about the fact that rick has a lot of energy at 74 which is amazing and it's you know wow you know you can have artists that will perform late into their careers you know we've talked about frankie valley being able to still get out there and perform yeah but that's rare 
and for I, I think it's for those of us who love live music, there probably won't be a whole lot more opportunities for some of these artists. You know, they you know everyone that you mentioned is you know older, and you just never know health wise what could happen with people. Sometimes they just retire after a while. So I, I agree with you. If if our listeners have the opportunity to see this show, uh, definitely take advantage of it. Yeah. Um, so hopefully, hopefully you enjoyed us looking back on this particular episode, or, you know, the concert, and uh, check it out if you can. If if for the reason to go back and revisit some of these songs and appreciate them all over again. And uh, well, I was somebody you know growing up that um, I never owned anything from Rick Springfield. I n- never had any albums or tapes or uh, CDs. I always liked the singles. I mean, I. I was always, you know, a big fan of, of of just that sound that he had, and it's um, n- when it ever came on the radio or MTV, never changed it. I yeah. mean, I always liked Rick Springfield, and so, you know, I'm obviously not someone that can go deep into the catalog. Uh, I know the hits, yeah, but it sounds like that's what he plays. Yeah, and and I should mention at one point he, um, and I and I've read about this in in Wikipedia that he has talked about that he has struggled with depression for many, many, many right, years. Right. And he did take a couple of minutes to talk about that and say that, you know, you know, if you kind of reach out to people and say, if, if you're suffering in a world that, you know, you can't, you just need help. And he said, I was at that point, he goes at the, at the top of his career, you know, he's in the mid eighties. He couldn't have been any more popular. He had many, he had lots of money. He had a, wife and family you know he was couldn't have been more successful and he said he felt horrible and he just he just had was suffering from this incredible bout of depression and that he didn't know how didn't know how to get out of the the hell that he was in and he was he had to get therapy and so he kind of made this plea to those who you know, maybe suffering. Uh, but I think it's it's a topic of discussion that's very near and dear to his heart. I've heard him mention it many times before when he talks about depression and he says it's real. You know, it's um, he even told told a story, not in the concert, but I've heard him tell a story about that he tried to hang himself when he was 17 and the, oh, rope, wow. and the rope broke. Wow. And, and that he was, uh, you know, he was that bad. He was that depressed. So, you know, he... he, he mentioned that in the concert um but yeah i i thought it was very well done by uh, by mr rick springthorpe as he is in real life but rick springfield mm-hmm. was the uh, was the guy who put on the concert and it was a, a ton of fun i couldn't recommend it more and so that was uh we'll, we'll get to the story behind the song some other time but sure Next, uh, next week is your topic. So, what, Sean, what do you think you're going to talk about next week? Okay, so I was going back and forth with some topics. I actually had had much like you, how you kind of pivoted with a topic. Uh, you know, I I had a, a a music topic that I was going to come out with. However, uh, we had some unfortunate news come out about three weeks ago. The the great, the legendary Paul Rubens passed away, and. Um, a great moment that I had back in the 80s was going to see a movie with you. Yes. And that was Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yes. So as a tribute to Paul Rubens and, and that, that fun evening that we had, you and me and my friends, when we went out and we saw Pee-wee's Big Adventure, let's, um, let's go back and revisit Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it was one of those things that kind of 
got mentioned in the news, but uh, you know, Pee Wee Pee Wee Herman, you know, is his alter ego, but Paul Rubens was somebody he got into you know some trouble in the late '80s, but up to that point had a marvelous career. Love Pee Wee Herman. Thought 80s. he was hilarious. Uh, so yeah, I think it's appropriate to 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 bring up bring that up, and I think we'll have a lot of fun and for for a lot of Gen Xers. That was that was a great that was a great uh, moment when we went and saw that mm-hmm. in the movie theater for the first yep, time. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So as we let Mr. Rick Springfield take us out again, thank you so much for listening to the Gen X Playback Show. We couldn't, we wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for listeners like you. Uh, so hopefully you liked our retrospective on the I Love the 80s tour with Rick Springfield and the Hooters and Paul Young and Tommy Two-Tone. Uh, personally, I want to thank all four groups and artists for putting on a really fun concert. Uh, you know, it just was a great time to go out there with my wife jump around and, and have a good time and pretend that we were 18 all over again. And I'm just glad that we finally got to do a deep dive into the Hooters. There you go. All right. Thanks for listening to the Gen X Playback Show. We're the brothers. Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Sean. And we'll talk to you later. See ya.